Recording in progress. Welcome to Queer Brood, a show about queer families produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Lauren Bull. Today's episode is co-produced by Anya Saravanan, Darcy O'Connell and Shamini Joseph. Queer Brood acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the sovereign lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge elders past and present, as well as the owners of the land you're hearing us from. Sovereignty was never ceded. Before we start, we'd like to warn listeners that today's episode of Queer Brood might make for difficult listening for some people. Our topics today are donor conception and IVF, and some of the content we'll be discussing include descriptions of medical treatment and medical discrimination. If any of these themes are triggering for you, please come back next week. And if anything we've discussed so far is upsetting or you need to talk about it, you can call QLife on 1300 555 727 or visit their website at qlife.org.au where you can connect via web chat with someone between 3pm and midnight. So we all know a beautiful kid who was born out of a donor-conceived or IVF-assisted pregnancy. It's become really common in our community for people to get pregnant or have kids in these ways. But lots of us still find it pretty confusing overwhelming, expensive, and often emotionally really taxing to work out. So in today's episode, we're really lucky to be joined by a few people who've been there and done it. Tune in and you'll hear from Steph and Christina. Uh, hi, so my name's Steph um, and in my family, there's four of us. So there's myself and my partner, Eddie, and we have two kids, Frankie, who's five, and Asha, who turns one on Wednesday and I guess when I think about my queer family I suppose I also think about our chosen family and we have a close group of um, friends other rainbow families with kids of similar age and um, it's been really lovely raising our children um, I suppose in that close community as well where we we share a lot Um, yeah childcare and food and clothes um and so yeah I feel really lucky to have that support um and we both have um come from families where we have one younger sister each so we I suppose both had an idea in our heads that um well that's what we were expecting I suppose we thought about our own future families that we'd have two girls two years apart with two parents and that was how it was going to go um and obviously it didn't <laughs> quite um but I guess yeah that that starting point made it easier um that we both thought that we wanted to have two kids um Eddie had always wanted to be pregnant and have that experience of um I suppose growing and birthing a child and I never did um I guess when I thought about parenthood I thought about um, like the act of parenting and I used to work in childcare um, in after school care and holiday programs and disability support and as a nanny and babysitter so when I thought of kids I thought of you know the kind of five to 12 year old demographic that I was used to working with um, yeah and um, so yeah I was very happy to not be pregnant so again and she was older as well so um, it, everything kind of lined up that it made sense for her to um, be pregnant the first time and then we decided that we'd see how that went before making the decision about who was going to carry our second child um so originally I had thought um what we wanted was to use a known donor and I had a friend in mind who I guess I'd always thought um if I ever had kids that they would be the person that I would ask to be the donor um because they were yeah a lovely person I'd known them a long time um someone who was smart and caring and creative and um those things that and respectful and I trusted I guess um so all of those things were important to us um so so it was quite a while ago now it's been maybe yes seven years ago I guess um maybe longer um I sent him a Facebook message and said oh there's something I want to ask you are you free to catch up um and he said, 
yes and so I suggested we meet at a bar um, near his work after work and I felt so nervous it was so awkward and I think because of the way that I'd phrased and he could see how nervous I was he had guessed either from the message or from the way I was acting at the time um, what I was going to ask it seemed like he had prepared like he already he wasn't surprised he knew what he was going to say and he said yes and he had also thought about um the role that he would want to play if he was a donor um and so again that lined up so that was good um but then when he spoke to his partner about it um his partner was not supportive um okay he came from a more of a was a bit younger and came from more of a conservative family I think more of a religious family um and had I suppose those more conservative ideas about um family structures so we tried over a few months saying you know sending resources and saying can we you know what if the four of us meet and talk about his concerns um and we invited them for dinner. And so we tried a few times to see if it was something that could be resolved. And in the end, um, yeah, our friend's partner sort of didn't want to engage with it. Um, and so we decided that um, we didn't want to bring a child into the world where there was someone who didn't want them to exist. That didn't seem like an ethical thing to do. And also I didn't want to put my friend in a position because I think you know he was sort of saying he was potentially willing to donate anyway but I didn't want to put that in his in position of creating a source of tension with his partner so we said thanks so much for your generosity we're not going to continue to put this pressure on you um and we ended up making a list of everyone else that we knew who could be a potential donor um but I think because I'd had this friend in mind for so long like for you know, my whole adult life, I suppose. So by that point, more than 10 years, when we looked at everyone else, um, no one seemed quite right. I think, you know, it's like that thing where you've been in a relationship with someone for a long time and then you, you break up and someone says, oh, there's many more fish in the sea. And you think, yeah, but I want that fish. Like that is the perfect fish. And by definition, every other fish is a substandard fish. <laughs> and of course it's not rational. <laughs> and of course then, you know, people have those feelings and go on to have other successful relationships, maybe more successful relationships. But in the moment, it's just everything feels like a downgrade, even if it's not, um, because you're creating a standard that was like built around a specific person and no one can be more like that person than themselves. So everyone else is doomed to meet the criteria. Um, so that was uh, one factor. The other thing was we went to a um, legal information session that was run um, at Northside Clinic in um, Fitzroy. Um, I think it was part of, I think it was part of Midsummer Festival at the time um, and they gave uh, information for prospective parents, I suppose, about the considerations and risks. Um, and we found that quite alarming hearing about cases where um, people had made an agreement with a known donor and then people's feelings had changed after the baby was born. Um, and even in cases where um, the parents were legally recognised as a parent, as parents, we found out there were cases where the donor um, had like quite significant influence over the family in a legal sense. There was one example given um, where the parents wanted to move into state for, I'm not sure if it was, you know, work or family reasons, and the donor objected and ended up being successful in that court case um, that the judge ruled that even if he wasn't a parent, he was a significant person that the child should not be separated from. Um, so anyway, we found that quite alarming um and you know i don't know if that how that might have just been one case but it was enough kind of with those two factors combined that we decided that um we would instead of using a known donor use an unknown donor and we had been going to the um prospective lesbian parents group which at that point was meeting in carlton i'm not sure if it still does um and also online um and so yeah we've met a doctor through that group um, who we liked and so I guess um, decided to go down that path. Sorry, that was a very, very long explanation. So um, my name is Christina Antoniadis. Um, 
I facilitate the Prospective Lesbian Parents Organisation uh, in Victoria. Um, we do a lot of work, obviously, with women that are intending to become parents. Um, and uh, I got into that because I went to PLP when I was uh, looking at starting a family and they were absolutely amazing. Um, and over the years, I've, I've kept in touch and I've always done the um, kind of like the legal information session for them. Um, and then, yeah, kind of landed with me, which I which I love. Um, I'm also uh, an accredited family law specialist and have been doing this for nearly 20 years. Um, and a big part of my practice is working with the um, LGBTIQ plus community. So and I just I love it. I love what I do. I love that aspect of my role because it's not litigious um, insofar as I do donor agreements and parenting plans and those sorts of things, um, as opposed to obviously the litigious side when things fall apart for people. Um, and obviously I do I do work in that in that sphere as well for um, lesbian parents, gay parents, um, acknowledgement of parents, even though they might not be legally recognised under the law, but ensuring that um, a parent continues to have a relationship with their child. Next, I asked Christina to give us an overview of donor conception in Australia. So there's a lot of women that say, that come to me, and so I draft a donor agreement, I'll speak about those in, in a moment, but they come to me and they say, look, I don't love the idea of going through IVF. I'm only in my early 30s or 20s or whatever it might be. Um, I've got a known donor and I really would like to um, try home insemination. You know, what, what are the laws around that? It's a common, I get that a lot. And I said, it doesn't matter. As long as you don't have sexual intercourse with the donor, it doesn't matter the method of conception. You can do home insemination. You can um, do it through IVF. You can do it however you, you want. And at the end of the day, the only difference is how you register the birth, okay? So um, the legislation as we currently have it under the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act is that conception can be home insemination. It can be IUI, which is basically home insemination, but through a clinic. So it's not, you don't have to go through the injections and, and all of those things with a clinic. It's just simply they, they, they monitor your cycle and when you're ovulating, they put the sperm in. So that's, um, it's a less invasive um, method, um, but not a lot of the donors have the sperm quality to do that. So again, you, you're looking at all these different things when you're when you're thinking about the way you'd like to conceive. And then there is the IVF option, which is um, you have to have the injections, have the eggs removed, fertilize the eggs, and then wait till you're ovulating and have them put back in. And that's very invasive. I've done that twice. I've done it a number of times. I've got two children. Um, and it is, it's awful. Like it makes you feel awful. It makes you feel bloated. The procedure is awful um, when you treat the eggs. I, I mean, I've had some women that have said, oh, I didn't know, notice a difference at all when I had it done, but I, I found it really, really just, I mean, they're just pumping you full, full of hormones. So I found it quite hard, but I mean, the end result's amazing. So you kind of, you have to weigh it up. Um, so yeah, so the difference with methods of conception is if you do do home insemination, I always say to um, my clients that I want them to make sure that they know their donor really well. Um, because if you do home insemination, you don't need to do counselling. Uh, that's a requirement through an IVF clinic. So you literally just have your donor um, and they come over when you're ovulating, give you a sample, and then you, you insert it yourself and, and attempt pregnancy conception. Um, there's risks with that, obviously. You've got, you know, STIs, um, uh, health risks, all of those sorts of things. Um, and so there's been a a bit of a movement lately. So there's a number of online websites where you can find donors and Facebook pages and things like that, which is lovely and great because I personally like the idea of knowing some of my children's mannerisms and I, I know that they come from the donor rather than from, from me, um, all the bad ones, of course. Um, and I, um, so I get that side of things. And so when they come to me and say, we've got a known donor, I often say, look, what are your thoughts about doing a bit of counselling with them? Um, I've had a number of matters where um, it's fallen over because it comes out as we negotiate the donor agreement in terms of it, that they want to be present at the birth and they want to um, meet the child the first day they're born and all of these things. And in my mind, they're red flags to say to these women, I love that you've got a known donor, but I think this person wants to be a father. Okay, so they're things that kind of trigger 
um, me and I, I have to kind of give that advice. So they've had to pull out of that arrangement. Um, so whereas if you do I if you do conception through an IVF clinic, whether it's um, IUI or IVF, um, what happens is you have to have three sessions. Um, I think there's one joint session with you and your partner, and then the donor has one, and then they come together for a joint session. And so the counsellor can really kind of flesh out um, what's going on there, whether there's an intention that the donor would like to be a father. Um, and yeah, and it, it provides that extra, um, I guess, that extra level of um, security for them because donor agreements, and this is, I guess, a, I think this is something that really needs to be changed in the legislation. Donor agreements aren't acknowledged at the moment, okay? So all they are um, is evidence of intention of the parties at conception, so prior to conception rather. So the donor agreement would address things like, um, it'll say things like the donor, and it's very tight and it's very clinical. And I feel awful sometimes when the donor reads it and goes, oh my God, I'm just a sperm making machine. And so what I say to them is I, I, I totally get that, but this is for the protection. So I act for both, I act for donors as well as intended mums. Um, and it will outline that the donors have no parental responsibility, that the donor um, is not a parent, that the donor will not see the children unless directed by the intended mums, um, that the donor's family is or isn't to know. And if they are to know, the donor is to deal with their expectations and show them the agreement and, and that sort of thing. Um, so it's very, it's very tight in that way. The problem, and so the evidence, the only evidence they have at conception with a self insemination is that agreement okay so um when the child's born um the agreement is only uh i guess as much of the security as they seek to enforce it and what i mean by that is if you have a donor agreement that says no contact um intended mums only um donors not all parents no, no parental role nothing if and i've had this a number of times unfortunately for the intended mums is if the child gets born, the child's born, child's healthy, um, donor meets the child, mums love the fact that donor's there, donor plays more of a role than what was intended in the donor agreement, which is lovely if that's what they want. But then there's a breakdown of the relationship somewhere along the way between the donor and intended mums. And it may be that the donor's like, I love this, I want to have more of a role. And the mums are like, oh, hang on, that's not what we signed up for. But by that stage, the donor's already established a relationship with the child. Um, and what happens then is that the donor says, well, hang on, um, I'm not a parent under the law, but what I am is I'm, I'm, I have a relationship with this child and I'd like to preserve that relationship. And so then an application gets made to the Federal Circuit and Family Court of Australia. Um, and just so everyone's clear, it's not for the donor to be a parent, it's for the donor to be, have a relationship with the child. And the principles under the court, the sole, you know, the, the one that's you know, I can't even think of the right word, but the principle is best interest of the child is the paramount consideration. So a court will have a donor agreement as evidence that he wasn't to be a parent. Then they'll have a relationship post that that really supersedes that donor agreement. Um, and then the court will say, well, okay, he's not a parent and it was never intention he would be a parent, but he's now established a relationship. And we have to establish whether that relationship is in the best interest of the child to continue. And if you look at that, and you know, if the child's one, two, you're not going to pull someone out of their life that is safe, if that person is safe, obviously. Um, you're not just going to pull that person away and go, okay, no, no relationship. That's it. We're cutting that off because there was an agreement at the start. So the donor agreements are important because the evidence is intention, but it's really important that you abide by that agreement after the child's born. Um, because if you don't, then you kind of can open up Pandora's box. Um, and it's really tough. It's really hard. Like I had a, a client yesterday who said to me, you know, you've been through this. Um, do you have a known donor? I said, yeah, I've got, a, I've got a known donor. And does your known donor see the children? I said, yeah, he does. But I can't advise what your donor is going to do because it's so different. My donor doesn't want to be a dad. Um, and, you know, there's that very clear boundary with him. Um, but, you know, when people say, oh, what's the best option? What should I do? And nine times out of 10, I would say to them, if you want to be 100% safe and that the donor is not going to make any application to the court, you, you have a no contact donor. It's very simple. So it's really hard weighing up the law and weighing up the personal 
side of it, um, especially when I've been there and I know it. So the difference between obviously going to a clinic and doing it at home is that a known a known donor through a clinic, they will they will have a record as to how many people that they've donated to. Um, and as I said, legally it's a maximum of ten. Whereas if you go uh, and do home insemination, that donor may have donated up to 20, 30 families, and you just don't don't know. Um, and so that's the obviously they're at a health risk. So um, with um, today that we now have, we've got a number of offshoots. So there's been a number of practitioners, um, IVF specialists rather, that have um, gone, okay, I don't want to be part of that big establishment and they've shot off. So we've got number one fertility, we've got new life fertility, um, just to name a few. And um, uh, yeah, and there, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit biased because um, I, I um, have dealt with Dr. Chris Russell for many, many years and he's through new life. And I just found him to be um, really personable. He really supports the prospective lesbian parents organization and comes to speak to us and, um, and gives advice. And, and he's just really, um, yeah, he's really quite lovely. So once those offshoots started to happen, we started to get international sperm into Victoria. Um, previously, um, you'd have to travel interstate to have access to that international sperm. Um, and, you know, there were, there were people, there were women, beautiful women they dealt with in PLP that were saying, you know, um, I um, want my partner is um, Malaysian, I want a Malaysian donor. They couldn't do that in Victoria. Um, so, yeah, we were going, there were a lot of women that were travelling interstate, so there's the, the more cost associated with that. Um, and I mean, IVF in itself, to do one cycle when, when I did it, um, from memory, it was about um, $15,000 to do. Um, and the, the difference as well with um, lesbians that are going through IVF, and I'm not sure, to be honest, whether this law has changed, um, is that because we have the ability to get pregnant naturally with a man, um, lesbians were deemed to be what we called, um, uh, hang on, we were non-medically infertile, we were socially infertile, okay? So it meant that we were electing not to have sex with a man um, and therefore we weren't medically allowed to get a, a rebate from Medicare for the cost of IVF. So heterosexual women um, or single women even were going through and getting that rebate, which is probably about six or 7,000 per cycle. Um, and but lesbians weren't treated as being medically infertile. And so at the time on a number of forums, it was like you go to this doctor and you say that you've tried IUI three times or you've tried home insemination three or four times or that you've got a history of polycystic ovaries or whatever it might be. And the doctor would just tick a box and say, yep, medically infertile, then you'd get the rebate. But the fact that we had to do that and that if you didn't know that you had to do that, you'd have to pay the full amount was quite, um, quite devastating. Um, so there was that discrimination. Um, the cost of it is just exorbitant. Um, and what, I mean, if you compare us to the UK where it's um, all funded, it's, it's really kind of, um, it really takes it out of the realm of many women who want to, many lesbians that want to have a, have a baby. Um, I was fortunate enough to do some research and find out that you can actually withdraw your super uh, to um, start the process. And so, um, you draw down and it does form part of your income. So the money that you draw down from your super uh, in that year. Um, and then, yeah, that pays for the IVF. Um, and so um, that's one option. But then if you think about it moving forward, you've got reduced super later in life and, and whatever it may be. And, you know, it could take two, three, four, five goes. Um, you may get the thing about um, IVF is you obviously do the hormones you get an egg retrieval and you may get, I had a client that got 20 eggs um, and none of them fertilized. And so there's $15,000 gone. Let's just see you later. Um, and then you try again. Um, and then once the eggs are out and you fertilize them, you've then got a five day wait. And in that five days, you're like, oh my God, we're going to survive. And so you may start with something like 15 eggs and have two that survive to five days. So it's, it's a really emotional process. It's a really grueling one. Um, and you kind of wait by the phone and then once it's implanted, you have to wait for 10 days and go, God, am I pregnant? I'm pregnant. Like it's just, it's really, it's really tough. And the other thing is, is that the, the medication that you're on um, after you've had the, um, the transfer of the embryo 
mimics pregnancy symptoms. So you're like, you're trying in your brain to go, okay, am I pregnant? Am I pregnant? And then your body's telling you you're pregnant because of all these hormones. And then you get a negative test and you're like, oh my God. So it's a really grueling process and it's an expensive one. Um, that 15 initially, and I'm, I'm quoting 15, but I'm sure that it's changed since then and I can get updated um, figures for you. But since then, so what it is, that 15 involves, um, it doesn't include the medication it used to. You have to pay that separately. It's about four or five hundred dollars, um, and that includes the obviously the admission to hospital, the egg retrieval, um, the fertilization, and and then the implant. If you do a fresh implant, if you decide to freeze them, um, you then have to pay another two thousand to have two three thousand to have that transferred back to you. Um, and the transfers vary. It's just like having a pap smear. It's not, I mean, it's not comfortable, but it's, it is what it is. Um, but it's nowhere near the um, same extent as the, like the retrieval of the IVF. And then on top of that, um, you can also, there are a number of women that decide they want to do reciprocal IVF. Um, and what that is, is um, that their partner uh, does the egg collection it gets fertilized and it gets implanted into their partner. And that's more expensive. I think it's about 18 or 19,000 because you're doing two, kind of like two, two cycles. Um, and there are also a couple of really lovely IVF doctors out there that um, even though their patients aren't doing IUI, they actually allow, they actually help their patients um, monitor their cycle and have a look at when the optimal time for the implant is. And they allow, they help them out with home insemination as well. So um, there are just some wonderful IVF specialists out there that um, I have a lot of time for and um, that just see kind of the, not the prejudices I would say, but the, the challenges that we have. Um, yeah. You're listening to Queer Brood, a show about queer family. On today's show, we're discussing donor conception and IVF as some of the many ways that people grow their queer families. So far, you've heard from Christina and Steph, and we're going to head back to hear more from Steph now about how she and her partner actually got pregnant. Um, so our first um, baby was conceived using an unknown donor um, through IUI, uh, and we were lucky enough to be successful on the first try which was um very lucky and then for our second child um we used reciprocal ivf so we had planned to use iui again um with eddie carrying my partner carrying um but after three rounds of iui the clinic said well after two rounds i tried to cut us off and then the doctor pushed for a third round um uh but then we were told we couldn't continue with that process so uh, we had to move on to IVF. So that was um, then a kind of another decision-making point because um, Eddie was not keen to do IVF because of the invasiveness and the surgery to do the egg retrieval. Um, so, yeah, we had a lot of discussions about whether we would use her eggs or my eggs. Um, and one consideration was I knew I was a carrier for X-linked ichthyosis, which is a skin condition, um, which is you know, it's on one hand, it's a skin condition. On the other hand, it's like quite visible and quite annoying, I guess. Um, my dad has it. And so, um, yeah, had an idea about what it was like. And so we knew there was a one in four chance that if we use my eggs, the baby would have uh, ichthyosis. Um, so we were factoring in that. We were trying to think through every permutation of the relationship between the kids, the relationship between us and the kids, the relationships between our families and the kids. Would it change how our families saw our children, you know, whether they were genetically related or not? Uh, and in, then in the end, we decided to use my egg. Um, and that was my preference, I think, because I liked the idea of um, having one child each that was genetically related to each of us. It seemed kind of symmetrical I guess um, <laughs> um, so yeah we use reciprocal IVF so um, I went through the IVF cycle and then Eddie carried the baby um, and, and was the decision to keep the same donor made um, specifically to sort of biologically keep the children related yeah I guess um, so that was a decision we made pretty early on like we intentionally reserved multiple 
um, straws, they're called, um, of the donor sperm that we'd been paying to keep in storage. Um, so we did it in both of our names to like, we at every step of the way, we really tried to maximise our options. So um, we had, yeah, sperm reserved for this from the same donor in Eddie's name and in my name. So we had those options. We had multiple vials um, to try. Um, and yeah, I guess we wanted... Well, I guess it's a couple of reasons. Yeah, we did like the idea of the kids being genetically related. It was not just about that, though. I think the bigger factor for us was that um, using an unknown donor creates uncertainty in a sense of unknownness. Um, and we, not just in terms of the person, but also the relationship that they might want to have with the kids in the future. And obviously, we know that he won't ever be a parent, but we were even thinking things like, you know, if our kids want to write a letter to him, like, will he reply to the letter, like even that level, or if I ask for a photo, will he send a photo, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and so it was important to us that as much as possible, we wanted to keep that equitable between our kids, because we thought about how heartbreaking it would be if both kids decided to write to their donors, say, at the same time, and one you know, got a letter back saying, oh, it's so good to hear from you and I'd love to meet you. And the other one, I never heard anything. And that would be, I think, quite heartbreaking. So, you know, while of course there's no guarantee that a person will relate equally to um, all of their donor children, we thought that was maximising the chance and it was something that the kids could share and then talk to each other about, I guess, um, because I suppose we felt like that was something separate from us that we can do what we can to try to provide answers, um, but it's up to him as well, I suppose. So it was more about that equity, about the equity of relationship with the donor rather than a equity in the way they looked or anything like that. That was the main factor. Stephanie then discussed whether in her experience, IVF clinics in Melbourne are queer friendly. Yeah, there are clinics, like there's um, rainbow fertility. I think that uh, markets itself uh, especially as being queer friendly. Um, I guess, I suppose our clinic, you know, I'm not, I suppose they would have described themselves as um, inclusive and they were in the sense that we never experienced any um, overt homophobia. Like there was never any sense of, um, I suppose, yeah, judgment or where we felt unsafe. Um, so from that perspective, it was, fine um it was more that they hadn't thought of they hadn't thought about the ways that queer families are different from heterosexual families I think you know um and this applies I suppose in all services when it comes to um queer inclusion I suppose there's for a lot of people have this um know value ethic framing maybe framing is the best word where they say we you know we don't discriminate we treat everyone the same and I think that was very much the um, framing of this clinic that what it meant to be inclusive was to treat everyone equally whereas what we know as queer people is what it means to be inclusive is to respond to what each family or each person needs and that queer people do need things that are different um, from straight couples so one example is if someone is trans then use their actual name not a name from 10 years ago um, what it means is that um, you know if there's two um, women in the relationship like the clinic needs to like keep track that they are together but different and um, we often got, yeah, kind of seen as a unit, which in some ways was good, but also annoying in cases like where I called and said, can you call me back? And they'd always call Eddie, for example. They're just like, oh, it's the mum. It's like, well, <laughs> there's two mums. Um, or, you know, another example was we part of the process which um, we found stressful and our friends have likely found stressful. Again, that's not a universal experience, but some people found it useful, but um, we have to have compulsory counselling. Um, and it has to be through one of the counsellors at the clinic. So, you know, we have our own therapist we've been working with for many years. She's not allowed to provide counselling, even though she's the one who knows us and is a lot more queer friendly. It has to be one of the pre-prescribed people. Um, so, and again, it felt like that she had boxes to tick, but we didn't know, I suppose, what those boxes were, which was quite stressful. And I can imagine that perhaps heterosexual couples going to that counselling would, if they have to do it, see it as 
um, you know, an opportunity to um, ask questions or talk about their needs. But I suppose as queer people, because we've had so many examples in our lives where we're told we're not allowed to do things because we're queer, like you're not allowed to get married, you're not allowed to have kids, you're not allowed to, you know, bring your partner to the school dance. I would say almost universally, well, maybe I won't speak at home. My, my friends and I certainly felt like that was less about us getting support and more about like um, having to prove ourselves that we were worthy parents. And so that's really stressful to feel like um, that someone else is going to be in control of whether or not we're allowed to have children. Um, and I've never heard of an experience where a counsellor has prevented someone from accessing services. Maybe it's happened, maybe it hasn't, I'm not sure. But that was certainly how we felt, which was quite stressful. Um, and the we've had two counsellors for the two children. And in both cases, we absolutely knew much more about the process than they did, even though supposedly the reasons why we're speaking to them is because this is their job and they have expertise. So, for example, um, you know, we were given a description of what happens during IVF, but it was a description that related to heterosexual couples. Again, like this thing of taking my sperm, which doesn't exist because I'm a woman. Um, and we were asked if we were going to tell our child they were donor conceived. And I'm pretty sure I said, I think they'll figure it out. <laughs> Um, and then, so then I'm like, okay, that was a bit of a flippant answer. So then I, if I'm going to be, tick, you know, get, I need to get my tick of approval. I said, oh, yes, we've been very, this is for the second counsellor. Oh, we've, you know, been very open with our first child. And, you know, even though she's only young, we've explained, we've read her books and talked about her donor and how she was conceived. And even, um, you know, because I came along, um, the partner has to be present for the insemination as part of the um I guess, consent for the creation of my child. Um, I was present for the um, IUI insemination attempt for our second child. And so our daughter was with us because, you know, she's usually with her parents. Um, so she was actually there for the potential creation of um, her sibling. And so I was trying to demonstrate our commitment to transparency and the um, counsellor said, oh, that's a bit much, isn't it? And I'm like, oh my gosh, what do you want? What do you want? We're going to tell our child that they don't have conceived if they're just, you know, it's immaculate conception. And then you're saying that we're giving too much information. It just felt like, yeah, there was this like very narrow idea of what, um, you know, how, how families should be created and, you know, the narrative you're meant to um, have. And without an understanding, I think of sometimes um, you know, and it's, I felt, it felt quite disrespectful to just assume we're just going to it without having already read every website, read every book, talked to dozens of people, given a lot of consideration. And I think something that's really not recognised by the clinics and the counsellors is that for heterosexual people, often having to access IVF at first is a shock because they spend their whole lives assuming that they'll just be able to have sex and make a baby. But for queer people, we've known you know, ever since we knew we were queer, which for some people has been their whole lives, for me was been, you know, since the late teenager. So there was 15 years before when I realised I was queer and when I wanted to have children. So that's 15 years in which we've been thinking about and talking about, um, you know, and that's not the case for everyone, but we've always known that we will need, if we're going to have children, we got, we're going to need a donor. And so we will have donor conceived children um, or be in a family structure where there's you know, one, two, three, four parents. Um, and that's just part of our culture, I suppose, within queer culture. It's not something that's new and shocking the way that it is. I'm not shocking is the wrong word. Confronting, I think. A lot of straight people find it confronting when they realise um, how hard it is to conceive and might have a sense of, you know, what it means for them as a man or as a woman to not be able to have children you know naturally to use in inverted commas um yes yeah, so that lack of recognition I felt was quite patronizing bordering on offensive um, <laughs> but what I was ranting about was mostly our experience um of IVF clinics um and I went to the name of our clinic because we're on radio but also because um we have friends with other clinics and it seems like the experience has been pretty consistent so it's this really stressful combination of being 
very expensive and very strict, but somehow really disorganized. So all through the process, you know, they were missing paperwork. You can never get hold of anyone. If you call, they say, oh, someone will call you back. They might not call back for days. They might not call back at all, or they might call back at like 4.55 and I'm in a work meeting and then you try to call back and the office is closed. Or I call and say, call me back because Eddie's at work. And so then, then they call Eddie and she's at work. So she doesn't answer. And then they say, oh, we couldn't get through to you, sorry. And so you just, this goes round and round in circles. Um, and it's obviously really stressful because some of these things are really time sensitive um, because you're like at a particular day of your cycle, you need to know straight away. Um, and we just felt like there was no acknowledgement of um, how stressful it was. Um, and there was a real expectation that, you know, we just had like, endless amounts of money and no other commitments um, in our lives. And I mean, I understand that, you know, everyone's human, mistakes happen, it's quite a complicated thing, but um, just they, the clinics have so much control because they're literally in control of whether we can have children or not. Um, and I know that, you know, people might say, oh, well, it's a free market if you don't like it, then you can go somewhere else. But once you've made a decision that you want to have children and you want to use the same donor, we you are then trapped because they're the ones that own the sperm that is the only sperm that is going to be the same sperm for their children to then have the same donor. They are holding our embryos. So we, you know, took a lot of work to create. Um, so yeah, I definitely felt like being held hostage, I suppose, um, at the whims of these really complicated policies that were not well communicated. We got um, mixed messages and unclear information the whole way through. The decision-making processes are really unclear. Um, you know, we really liked our doctor and trusted her to give straight answers. That's something that we liked about her. But the clinic, we felt like they never gave straight answers. It was really unclear who was in charge. It was really unclear what was a legal obligation versus just a clinic rule. Um, and a lot of the rules um, were not at all, like they were designed with um, heterosexual families in mind, and then they're still applied to queer families, whether they um, apply or not. So um, the example I was ranting about on Twitter was uh, when we were trying to get pregnant, I was told I have, had to have a blood test and the piece of paper I was given said male bloods. And I said, what's this for? And they said, oh, it's the bloods for the blood test for the partner. And I said, yes, but like, why? And they said, we say, oh, well, you know, we just need to make sure that, you know, the partner doesn't have any um, STI. So I got kind of vague answers and I kept asking the question. And eventually they basically were saying, well, you know, we want to make sure that before that we use your sperm, that you're not, a, um, for example, you're not HIV positive. And as a woman, I don't have sperm. <laughs> I'm not like physically involved in this process other than being present on the day and signing a form. And so like the only reason I had to do this blood test was because they had to tick a box to say the partner has done a blood test, even though I don't have sperm that I'm donating, they're, they're providing the sperm. Um, and I guess like perhaps an argument could be made that if I was HIV positive, that I could give it to my partner and then maybe they're trying to avoid a situation where she gets pregnant and then accuses them of giving her HIV. But I think that's not reasonable <laughs> for me to then be carrying that risk. And also if I was HIV positive, then what would that mean for the future of um, our family? Well, then they're gonna use that to discriminate when really my HIV status is completely irrelevant to whether or not we should have access to care. Um, anyway, so I guess um, because I have worked, um, you know, with lots of people who are HIV positive, I feel I felt like really angry on behalf of them that um, it seemed like there was no purpose for this blood test other than giving a means for discrimination. Um, and for myself, that then I had to take half a day of sick leave of work, pay however much it was for the blood test because it wasn't bulk billed, you know, have a needle, and I hate needles, um, all just so that 
they could tick a box. And so that was one example. Um, but there was a whole lot of things like that the whole way, th whole way through where um, the purpose of what we were being asked to do was either unclear or where we did figure out after a lot of questions why we were doing it, it was basically sort of for the clinic to protect themselves rather than for anything around, um, you know, a medical reason for us um, or a legal reason for us. Um, and I guess my, my both my parents are doctors and I was talking to mum about it and, you know, she pointed out that it's to force someone to undergo a medical procedure that they don't need is an unethical thing to do, like full stop. So, um, but somehow the way that it's set up is um, the, the doctors don't work for the clinic. The doctors are sort of, um, you know, have their own practice and they are sort of running side by side with the clinic. So the clinic has all this control about what medical tests you need, holding our future children in their freezers. Um, and the, um, as I said, I suppose the governance process is really unclear and it feels like there's not doctors in charge and I I guess because both my parents are doctors I have a trust in doctors that they have um, um, you know I know lots of queer people in particular have had a lot of negative experience with, with doctors but um, I feel like there's this understanding about um, caring for patients and that um, ethic does not seem to be the way that the clinic is run at, run at all um, I guess it's run much more like a business. It feels like it's run by lawyers or business people who are trying to make money um, rather than as a medical service. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, so all of the clinics operate in a similar way, right? They hold the sperm, they hold your eggs. And at this stage, I mean, there's some talk about some Medicare rebate or some increased Medicare funding, but at this stage, it's largely privatized. I'm so sorry you had that experience. It's horrific. You said that um, that's a that's been a common experience among people that you've talked to, or, or similar sorts of issues that they found with the clinics. Yeah, I mean, it seems like every everyone has their own um, <laughs> negative experience in different ways. Um, so, for example, um, you know, we have a friend who's trans, and they're you know the clinic often uses the wrong name, like uses their birth name rather than their current name. Um, or, you know, we had a example where they lost our paperwork and they were like, oh, can you just get a, a witness to sign this and then drop it off? I'm like, okay, <laughs> you say it offhand, can you get the witness to sign, drop it off? A, we're in the middle of a pandemic in stage four lockdown. So no, I'm not allowed to get within 1.5 metres of anyone except like who's going to sign this in a pandemic? We're not allowed to see anyone. Um, and then also like again like a lot of that kind of offhand like oh just drop it round it's like you're talking about a, a two hour round trip to get to the clinic and I have a three-year-old I have work like um you know why are we responsible for your administrative <laughs> mismanagement so again that's just one example but um there seem to be like lots of little things that really accumulated to this sense that like uh, we were not in control of our lives, I suppose. And for something that was so emotionally fraught, um, yeah, that was that was really challenging. Yeah. Um, and it goes yeah. on. And so I'm, yeah, I, and nothing, I think, at least on our, for us, um, and, you know, we had more challenges later with the pregnancy um, and the birth, um, but there's nothing that I feel like was, really horrific that was like really terrible that um you could kind of point to that one thing and to be like that was completely unacceptable it was more that it was just this like constant small things um that made us feel um yeah as I said like out of control and that we were being kind of forced into these boxes that we really didn't want to be in like we were only there because that was the way that we could create our family. And I guess there was a bit of a kind of one size fits all model that you opt into the clinic system and then you have to like cover these tests and go through IVF rather than, I know I've heard in other countries that um, people can uh, choose the services that they want. So for example, you know, access sperm without having to go through IVF 
um, or um, you know maybe like have their own own donor but have the support of a clinic or whatever it might be rather than sort of getting on this roller coaster where you sign up for a package deal and then you're strapped in and just hold on tight because you don't know what's going to happen next yeah I think um only other thing I wanted to add was a question of what advice would you give mm -hmm. um so yeah I mean anyway <laughs> so I think one thing for anyone who's considering having going through that process is to if possible give yourself a lot of time and space for the emotional roller coaster. I really underestimated, um, I guess, yeah, how much it is a real up and down, like the hope and then the sadness and the waiting is really stressful and feeling like distracted and scattered. And it takes a lot of time going back and forth from appointments. So I suppose my advice would be for people to give themselves the time and space to feel a lot of feelings and, um, you know, get that emotional support um, if they can um and um if they don't have friends they can talk to accessing groups like prospective lesbian parents either in person if that's still happening or online um my other advice would be to ask questions if you don't understand because a lot of it is quite technical and complicated and um some clinics use different methods so it's not necessarily the case you can read something online it may or may not apply for each clinic um and the other advice i would give um is we were really grateful um, the extent to which we planned ahead and tried to um, keep our options open as we went along. So things like if people can afford it, um, paying to reserve sperm, you know, in the name of both parents, if either parent might want to give birth in the future, getting multiple vials so that if you want to have more than one kid, you've got that chance if you want to have the same donor. Um, uh, and also now because we reserved in my name and I didn't end up giving birth, that means that we haven't yet reached the allocation, the maximum allocation for that donor and we can on donate. Cause I know a lot of people um, found they were unable to on donate their embryos and were shocked and upset about that. So it's pretty tricky, <laughs> but um, yeah, planning ahead I, helped us feel a bit more in control. Thank you so much to our amazing guests, Steph and Christina, for their time and openness with us today. We hope their stories have helped any listeners thinking about donor conception or IVF, or anyone still in the early stages of thinking about how they might grow their family. If this episode brought up anything you'd like to talk about, you can call QLife on 1300 727 or visit their website at qlife.org.au, where you can connect via web chat with someone between 3pm and midnight. That's all for Queer Brood today. Queer Brood is produced and presented by a group of queer and trans broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne, with financial support from the city of Yarra here in Nam. The theme music for Queer Brood is produced by Darcy O'Connell. Queer Brood programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au and listened to as podcasts on your favourite podcast app.